Welcome to Non-Obvious with Hugh Hansen. And and welcome to Renata Hess. Uh, so, and it's great to have you. How long have we known each other? I feel like I've known you a, a long time, but maybe it isn't that long. I'm try- I don't think it's actually been that long, but it's been at least since I was at, started at DOJ in 2012, right? That would have been the, I don't think we knew each other before that. Okay. All right. That's not all that long. Uh, now, but it's good, you know, when you feel like you've known some patient longer, it's a good sign of something. I'm not sure exactly what. <laughs> all right. So uh, where were you born? I was born in Oakland, California. Okay, and you grew up there. I grew up in Berkeley, technically, but I was born uh, in Oakland. And and is that actually damaged you in any way? <laughs> so perhaps you should ask other people that question. I think for me, it was a great advantage, actually. What did your parents do? My father was a lawyer, and my mother um, was a teacher, uh, but she. Um, when I was, I guess I, a, a teenager, I think she she invented a protractor, Ooh. and she got it patented. And so most of my kind of the time of my life that I remember really well, she was working in a um, laboratory instrument uh, company, trying to get this um, protractor marketed and sold. So your mother was a techie. She was a mathematician. Mathematician. <clears throat> um. And what type of law did your father do? My father was an appellate practitioner, and mm. he. Um, so when I was very, very little, he worked for the continuing education of the bar, which was uh, is one of the California CLE companies. Um, uh, it was called CEB, and then um, he be, he was a solo appellate practitioner. He used to work in an office in our house. Uh, any siblings? Three. I am the youngest of three. I have two sisters and a brother. And did they look after you as you were growing up? Um, yeah, probably some. And what do they do? They, so my oldest sibling is my brother. He teaches psychology at UC Berkeley. My next oldest sibling is my sister, Carla. She is a history professor at Berkeley. Um, and most recently, she's just, just stepped down from being the executive dean of the College of Letters and Sciences there. Mm. And then my um, next closest age in age sister uh, works uh, at UC Santa Cruz. She works on the administrative side at UC Santa Cruz. A lot of uh, academic background then going on. We're yeah. a big Cal Bear family. Mm. Um, so how did you end up at Wellesley? Well, I spent my entire life on the West Coast in the Bay Area, and I really wanted to see another part of the country. So I um, I applied to Berkeley. I, I went to Berkeley when I was a high school student, um, took a couple of classes there. And so I was the only school that I applied to on the West Coast was Berkeley. And then I um, applied to a few schools on the East Coast and ended up at Wellesley. And? I loved it. Yeah. yeah. Now, uh, you were a jock. I don't know if I'm allowed to use the term jock anymore for an athlete, but uh, you obviously were. You were on a varsity volleyball team. Mm -hmm. And what position did you play on the team? 
So I um, didn't play very much. <laughs> and mostly because I'm actually too short. I'm not short enough to be a setter and I'm not tall enough to be a hitter. Um, but I would play effect, essentially defense. Right. I'm not a striker. Okay. And then uh, you fled the East Coast or how did you go right back or what? Uh, I did go right back. Um, I wouldn't say that I fled the East Coast, but I did miss California. I um, I liked I liked Boston, but um, but I wanted to go home. What is it about California that you like? It's um, it's a combination of a kind of um, relaxed, comfortable um, attitude towards life, and with a relatively high amount of intellectual intensity. So you get both some calm and nice weather, um, but it's interesting. Hmm. All right. So uh, what led you to uh, get into antitrust? So I had a kind of um, unusual entry into antitrust. I started out um, at a law firm in San Francisco doing really just doing litigation and then I got kind of interested in intellectual property litigation um, and for most of my time as an associate at my law firm I did IP litigation mostly copyright and trademark and some uh, some patent litigation also um, and were you were you on both sides or did you mostly find you on the plaintiff side or the defendant side or what we did a little bit of both but a lot of software copyright work so I did a, a, a the biggest matters that I worked on, the IP matters I worked on, were for Nintendo, and they were um, cases where we were both the plaintiff in some cases and defendant in other cases. By the way, do you consider yourself a techie? I always say to people that I am, um, I like technology and I'm not technology averse, but I'm not like an electrical engineer kind of techie person. Mm -hmm. All right. So your first firm, you were doing it as IP litigation, then what? So I, um, so we were doing these cases for Nintendo, and they often had antitrust counterclaims in them, which is how I got introduced to antitrust. And I was working with a partner who did the antitrust side of the cases, and he got asked by Ann Bingaman, who was the AAG. Um, one of the AGs during the Clinton administration to come back and be like a litigator to come and you know litigate cases if they were going to bring them. And I was trying to figure out what to do with my life, and I wasn't sure I wanted to work in a law firm or what exactly I wanted to do. And the associate who was really my mentor and a very very good friend of mine <clears throat> said to me one night, "Well, maybe you should go work with George." So George Cumming was the name of this. A gentleman who went to the antitrust division, and so I left Georgia voicemail on his voicemail at uh, Brobeck. When was this? This was in 1996, I guess. Okay. Um, and said, "Hey, you know, if you ever need any help, maybe I'd be interested in coming to help." And um, a year later, he called me and he said, "So you think you might be interested in coming and working at the antitrust division?" And I thought. I don't know, maybe. And um, at the time, they were thinking about challenging the Bell Atlantic 9X merger. Mm -hmm. Remember that? And George was working on that, and he said, I need somebody 
who knows how to litigate and who knows how to work in a courtroom. And uh, I know you know how to do that. And does this interest you at all? Yeah, you became a section chief then, right? So the, I, I started at the division in 1997 just as a staff lawyer. And by the time I started, they had decided not to challenge the Bell Atlantic 9X litigation case. So I went to a regular section at the time during the merger wave. So there was a section at the antitrust division called the merger task force. So I went to the merger task force and I did just lots and lots of merger work. Is there, would you say a, uh, I don't want to say fundamental, but a significant difference of uh, merger antitrust and other types of antitrust? They are different disciplines. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, commonality in the theory underneath them. But, you know, the difference between a merger investigation and a what we call civil non-merger investigation, so a monopolization, Section 2 matter, those are two very different beasts in terms of how they're investigated and, and litigated also. Um, and then you have the criminal antitrust, the cartel um, matters, that and which is a completely different... Um, uh, discipline. Again, it's all underneath it is all the sort of the same general concept is you don't want. So once you start in mergers, do you basically try to stay in mergers the rest of the time? Well, so the, the, the division at the time was divided up. So there were, there was this section that just did mergers. And then there was a section that just did civil non-mergers. And then there were some industry sections and they really had done that as I understood it to deal with this incredible wave of mergers that were coming through they needed you know just to have a lot of capacity and what happens in the division when you have mergers and civil non-merger investigations is that the mergers have clocks because of the Hart-Scott-Rodino Act and so people pay attention to the mergers and they don't the other investigations move very slowly so the idea was let's have a sec sections that can move these other matters along and not be distracted by the mergers and then sections that can do the mergers so at some point during the time that I was at the division in those the first time period, they decided that that really wasn't such a good idea. And so they went back to the system which exists today where the sections are really divided by industries and they do both mergers and non-merger investigations. Mm -hmm. And so you see people doing, doing both of those investigations. To what extent uh, in, at this stage of your career did you have any interaction with the... Uh, Chief, uh, head of the antitrust division. Back back then, yeah, pretty rarely. Yeah, yeah. And to what extent does that person know what you're doing, or is it basically he or she deals with section chiefs, or or how, how does uh, how much control is there from the top in the antitrust division? So I think it, there's a lot of control from the top. I mean, the, the way the division works is there is a person in charge and that person delegates their authority to the deputy assistant attorneys general, but those people answer to the assistant attorney general. So, and, and ultimately the decisions are made by the assistant attorney general. So there's control in that sense. Um, the interactions between the front office and the career staff, um, it varies by AAG, really. Um, so we did a lot of interacting with the career staff. 
um, we encouraged meetings where the career staff would come over and talk to us about matters, in part because we really felt like it was important for people both to know us and who we were, um, but also to understand why we were making decisions and what the kinds of questions were that we had about particular matters. Yeah, uh, well, I actually, coincidentally, of course, uh, spent quite a bit of time working in the antitrust division as a student. Uh, for my entire first year, uh, summer of first, after first year and second year, um, I, it, I didn't work in any section. There was an administrative office, and they gave me this job of reading every antitrust opinion that the antitrust division was in, and and this was three by five cards. This was before you were born, uh, and then don't be so sure. Dividing it all up uh, and putting it in these uh, you know these boxes of mm -hmm. three by, um, and it's a tremendous introduction to. And I think it was for some reason uh, the head of the administrative section there just thought of this, and I don't know that it ever anything happened after I left, and then. I had a couple AAGs say to me, yeah, yeah, I know, but, you know, you forgot. You started out fine, but then you started, once you started the case, and then you did these other issues, you forgot to put the name of the case at the top of the card. Oh. Um, so I think it was of less value than maybe I thought. But, of course, actually... Uh, you still had at least what they were doing in terms of motions and everything else. But it was very interesting. But what the reason I'm raising it is there's a very strong, I don't want to say anti-IP, but close to anti-IP, you know, the, the no-nos and this and that. It was really viewed as that's a different world and we have to be very suspicious of it. Uh, I know that probably isn't the case anymore, but how much of that is residual in the antitrust bar or courts or what? So I, um, I always fight against that paradigm because I really feel, maybe because I started out as an IP lawyer, but um, I, I really feel like the two, you know, there's some natural tension between them because IP laws create monopolies, and they, but they create them for a reason. Um, and antitrust is in theory against all monopolies. So I, I, but I, but I feel like they are both disciplines are really trying to get at the same thing. Right? Both are trying to encourage innovation and competition and to make better products more interesting and to let people reap the rewards when they do something great and they build a good company or they build great products or they do something innovative. So they're not in terms of how they function in the real world, I feel like the both they have a very actual common um, goal and underpinning in mm -hmm. them. Um, so I've always felt like there was, um, I mean, my experience, it's always felt to me like the IP lawyers were always saying that antitrust was really could play no role in with intellectual property. Um, and, I feel like that's just not correct. Mm -hmm. And there are lots of doctrines that place limits on what people can do with their IP. Um, they're narrow and they're fairly limited. 
um, but they do exist. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I'm, I I feel like I'm always a person who lives in the middle, um, and that to me there's there is a middle ground between antitrust and IP, and we shouldn't be spending so much time beating up on each mm-hmm. other, and should instead instead be learning how to live in harmony, yeah. so that the people who are very into IP can accept. That there might be some times where people can do something with IP. Actually, that's, that's, not a, good. that's a good philosophy for now. And everyone is in the partisan divides and everything else is, of course, much worse than what's going on in the antitrust and IP. Uh, when I first went into and I, and I started as an antitrust lawyer, it's not surprising with that background. The mo- in terms of the almost the best thing going on outside of... Uh, your particular practice or government and what it was, the ABA antitrust section and the annual meeting in the spring, which was fantastic. Uh, is is that still going or is everyone more defeat because of the internet and everything else? And is No, that is still by far the biggest meeting of the year for antitrust. So I co-chaired it for the last two years. I'm not co-chairing it this year. It is an enormous meeting. It's gotten even bigger um, each year. I I wish I should I should have remembered the statistics for it, but we had, um, I think, well more than three thousand oh, attendees yeah. this past year, and it's gotten it's gone very international. Also, where do you find room for how many? It's at the one of the big hotels in DC. No, but in any particular session, you can't no. have three thousand people. No, no, no. There are different tracks going mm. um, at at the same time, so okay. people can choose. It's always you know you always worry about. Having and in terms sessions. of anti- international, and I was going to get to this later, but I'll get, jump into it a little bit now. With globalization, how much did you either in government or now with Sullivan and Cromwell, rather than just immediately thinking of the U.S., but also thinking what will DG Comp do or someone else will do? Is there, is there more of that now, do you think, than there has been in the past or the same? So, I mean, the difference between when I started at the Antitrust Division in 1997 and now is dramatic in terms of international cooperation and the uh, just the communication and the sharing of information and views amongst um, uh, global antitrust enforcers. So you have, you know, the International Competition Network, which does a lot of work um, in education. So with, you know, guidance on merger merger practices, for example. Um, and they have an enormous annual meeting every spring. Um, this, the one coming up uh, in 2020 will be in Los Angeles, actually, for the first time in the U.S., uh, where you have you know, in, enforcers from 130, 140 jurisdictions come together and talk to each other and learn from each other. Um, so, And then you have OECD, which is another multilateral forum where... Um, what is that? The... Organization for Econo- Economic oh, Cooperation OECD, Development, yeah, yeah, OECD. Yeah, yeah. So they have regular meetings where the heads of the agencies get together and talk. Um, and then you have very um, detailed case cooperation going on across many, many, many jurisdictions, depending on where transactions are need to be filed, for example. So um, that is that world of global globalization of antitrust is um, it very, very different today than it was 10 years ago, 15 years ago. 
All right, let me just, I said DG Comp, Director General Competition, which is the, of the European Commission, the section that deals with antitrust. Uh, how much did you have contact with them when you were in the antitrust division? So um, at the beginning, hardly none, any, yeah. hardly none, hardly any. Um, and then the first time I really worked very, very closely with them, which is how I got to know some of the people who I often see at your IP conferences. Um, is that is that the best IP conference in the universe? It is the best IP conference in the universe. Okay, here. yeah. Um, uh, the uh, the Hanson Institute. Um, so um, I got to know those people working on Microsoft. And we had very, very close cooperation between DG Comp and the U.S. on Microsoft. We didn't always agree, but we met very, very frequently. They would come to the U.S., we would go to Brussels. That was my first real intense experience of a cooperation. Um, okay. All right. Um, final thought on this. You said there's 140 jurisdictions. To what extent do developing countries care about it or if they care about it even get it right what competition law should do so i think um lots of you know it depends on how developing the country is but i think the 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 kind of um proselytization of antitrust and competition as being a driver for economic development um and uh has you know has really gone on gone around the world so that we have a lot of agencies very small economies who do antitrust and do antitrust enforcement ICN in particular is really one of the ways that the more developed antitrust uh, agencies and um, economies try to help teach say again who, what ICN is the International Competition Network okay and exactly when was that started and how does it work so I think it was started when Joel Klein was the assistant attorney general. Okay. So that, yeah. Um, and it is a, an organization that is run by a steering group of heads of um, agencies, and then they have uh, different um, working groups. So there's mm -hmm. a unilateral conduct working group, a merger working group, cartel, and those are chaired by uh, countries. So this is just government people. Just government people. And it's really designed to help train people in best practices across jurisdictions and also to to help bring understanding where there are conflicts between country, mm -hmm. countries in terms of how they uh, handle different kinds of um, theories. Okay. What about China and antitrust or competition? Uh, are they in it are they playing it correctly or or what is is there anything we can say about it so the, i mean the chinese antitrust agency which started out as three and was recently consolidated to one um is been quite active um and i think you know is really making an effort to um you know hold itself to a standard similar to what the um agencies in the U.S. and Europe do. They do a lot of um, uh, cooperation. Well, they don't do as much cooperation as, uh, for example, the, by far the most cooperation goes on between Europe and the U.S. and Canada and, and to a certain extent, Mexico. 
Um, all of the other jurisdictions do some of it, and China does does as well. Um, and I think they do um, work to develop um, their the way they think about and analyze problems, and to bring that into consistency with uh, with the more developed uh, antitrust agencies. Okay. Um, okay. Let's uh, try to hit some substantive areas. Uh, or things that have been going on. So the antitrust consent decrees, ASCAP, BMI, uh, up for review, uh, asked for comments. Um, uh, ASCAP wants to get out of what it considers, I guess, overly restrictive situations, which uh, in this economy makes it harder for them to operate. Um, what are the, uh, and Macon uh, has discussed things about this and he seems to be responsible to their concerns, but uh, what are the chances of anything do you think happening as a result of all this? Well, I, I think something will happen. I don't know exactly what it will be. Um, I mean, it is an odd situation where you have an industry that is instead of being um, governed by legislation and statute, is governed by a very, very old <laughs> consent decree. So um, I think most assistant attorney generals, when they come into the division and they realize that we're, you know, the division is still overseeing the um, ASCAP and BMI consent decrees, think, huh, does that really make sense? Maybe, maybe I can figure out a way to make this work better. Um, so I'm not sure what Macon will end up doing. I suspect he will do something. Um, it's a hard problem. Um, the industry is set up around those consent decrees. And so you can't just kind of make them disappear. I think it would be really a state of chaos if you did that. Um, there might be some different things that you could do to, um, make it work better and to modernize the decrees. Um, and that would go through Congress or just you guys, the, just the antitrust division? Well, it would probably, in order to modify the, the decrees, if you were going to keep the decrees but modernize them and change them, that would have to go through um, the Judge Stanton for the BMI uh, decree and Judge Cote for the um, for the ASCAP decree. Okay. Um, hold on. Let me just think. There was a... A case, uh, I guess, in 1915, 2015-16, uh, of which actually uh, I think you were a party to it, maybe as an amicus, I mean, when you're in the antitrust division, um, about partial withdrawal mm -hmm. um, of somebody from the consent decree, and that person would not have to then go through this mechanism, have a judge determine it, something else, and... Judge Laval and a couple other people had very little trouble saying, no, you can't do that. That If you're going to do something, you got to go through the proper mode. Now, you were in that case, I guess, as an amicus, were you? Or... So um, I think the division did participate in the, that case. Um, and what was your view then? And well, what happened then was that the, um, I mean, I guess a couple of things happened. One was... Um, I think it was Judge Cote wrote a decision that yes, yeah, so was Judge Cote suggested that maybe there had been some improper conduct um, 
going on um, in one of the uh, in within ASCAP. If I'm remembering this correctly, um, and so and at the same time, the the ASCAP and BMI came to the division and said, "Well, they've said that we can't do this without modifying the decree. So, can we modify the decree to allow us to do this?" So the division started an investigation and did something similar to what Macon did, but we um, put out some questions for comment and we took comments in and we met with people and we read the comments and we tried to figure out, you know, is there something we can do here? Um, and ultimately, um, we issued a statement at the end of that saying that we were going to leave the decrees uh, the way we, they were, but... Um, encouraging people to maybe take do some things to to maybe address some of the issues that um they were encountering all right just for people who are listening the case i was talking about was uh pandora media v ascap and it was in uh, 2015. um so to, to me anyway as an outsider on this and i'm obviously i'm supporter of if I have to take any side at all, I the creator side and ASCAP has been generally viewed as I'm, you know, supportive of the creative side. But ASCAP, the decree came about because ASCAP's prices, horizontal price fixing, uh, which of course then was per se, um, was so bad that BMI was created. They boycotted it, and that's how we got country music and everything else people listen to because they didn't have the ASCAP repertoire. So when ASCAP is left alone, though, it's not exactly like the greatest IP antitrust citizen. Uh, um, I'd be concerned that without the decree, I'm not sure what's going to happen. Uh, right. Well, that's why I think, I mean, I agree with you. I think you can't get rid of the decrees and not have something to replace them with. And Congress has shown no appetite for actually legislating in this area. Um, I, my view is in, in the statement that we issued at the end of our review, we welcomed Congress's action, frankly, because I think it should be something that is subject to legislation. Well, but you know, Congress, in my view, Congress does three things, nothing, that's what it does the best. And then it, in terms of IP and, and I trust especially, they codify some case law like fair use or they codify an industry solution like broadcast and cable, but they have zero interest in creating or doing anything policy-wise. In fact, they'll say to you, does everyone agree? And if everyone doesn't agree, they're not particularly interested. And one of the reasons is unanimous consent to not have the 15 days of debate for any bill, and one person can just say no, and then it's not gonna actually be, be uh, put before Congress because they can't possibly. So there's so many possibilities of people. They're not interested, and if they were interested, messing up the system. That I don't hold out a lot of hope that Congress is going to come out for a solution. Right, which I think means that the, the decrees kind of have to stick around. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, people are talking about. Uh, Facebook, Amazon, you know, the Facebook people 
I think actually most of them love it. You know, pictures, everything else. Amazon. I think if the Amazon went out of business, I'd have to commit suicide. <laughs> you know, instantaneous, all this choice and everything else. So it's really the hierarchies are thinking, well, this is wrong, this is wrong, perhaps. Do you see anything happening realistically in that area? So um, it's a little hard to know because we don't know what exactly is being investigated and we don't know exactly what the companies are doing. Um, I think, a, you know, a big, I understand the um, fear of big tech because it's, there's a lot that's unknown and I think people um, are scared of things that they don't know mm -hmm. and they don't understand exactly how they work. So I, I get the kind of in consumer worry that, oh, they have all of my data or, um, you know, I don't, I'm not going and talking to somebody, so I don't know exactly what's going on. So I, I understand that. I, I don't, I think the, the conundrum for people is that consumers love what these companies do. You know, they, they, they believe that the innovation that, for example, Amazon does, they, you know, more products available to more people, they act as seller, you know, create a platform. They don't act as sellers, but they create a platform where a seller can, uh, you know, somebody who makes something in their own home can actually find a market for it. Um, that's a, it's kind of an amazing thing. Um, it is. Incredibly fast service, easy returns. You know, maybe there's a little bit Completely killing the retail industry, though. Well, sh should we be concerned about that, or would we just say that's, you know, that's what happens? I'm not sure it's accurate that it's completely killing okay. the retail industry. I think the I think it's actually a very small portion of, of retail sales, if you... If you look at the data, so I I think you know you to me these are these are policy questions. They're not really antitrust questions. So you know, do we care about the fact that Walmart, for example, which is a huge store, um, you know, sucks sales away from small smaller, more expensive stores in you know small downtowns? Is that a policy question that we as a country want to want to pay attention to? Consumers go to Walmart because huge selection, very cheap prices, that's, you know, which is a consumer good. And so I think if people, you know, believe that there's value in having small retail in downtown and small downtowns, then we have to think of other legislative tools to to use to give people the incentive to continue to to open and, and run those businesses and make them profitable. Well, we can't rely on a consumer who is the most selfish economic animal on the face of the earth. Uh, the poor ladies' garment workers were being killed by these imports and they, before your time, again, the commercial was look for the union label. And all the people buying this were women and no one looked for the union label. Uh, and it, so, yeah, it has to, um, if you just leave it to market forces, I think, uh, and, and, you know, if in fact Amazon, which I really didn't focus on, is making things available for the small business, that's actually pretty good, isn't it? Well, think about it. I mean, it is a marketplace where people can sell things. Hmm. Um, and, you know, you go, if you look on Amazon, you'll see when it's fulfilled by Amazon and when it's fulfilled by um, somebody else. I mean, I, 
buy books on Amazon sometimes. And you read books? Occasionally. But, but for example, when my kids were born, and I remembered a book from my childhood that I loved. Um, and uh, Are you going to name that book for us? <laughs> Maybe. I have to actually remember the name of it. Okay. I remember the cover, but I can't at the moment remember the name. If I can remember the name, I'll... Um, um, and it's obviously out of print. It's I'm old. I'm pretty old, so... You're not um, old at all. Um, just a child. <laughs> from so, my perspective. Yeah. So um, I found it from on Amazon, fulfilled from a rare book dealer in, somewhere in the middle of the country. And that's who I bought the book from. That's pretty neat. It is pretty and it neat. allowed that person, rare book dealer in the middle of the country, to for us to connect. And by the way, I in your bio section, which... Uh, you have children? How many children? Two. Boy, girl? The older is a boy. He's 12. And the younger is a girl. She's 11. And, you know, I'm, a, I'm a, you know, crazy about kids at all the ages. But 12, 11, is that, how would you put that in the spectrum of growing up for a parent? Is that before the major crises? Or is it, what is it? Um, it's a great time, actually. They're really fun to be around. They're interesting. They have views. They still love me and want to see me. Um, you know, they're not always easy, but um, but I I enjoy being around them. And how much um, in government? All right, that's another thing. In government, how much control did you have of your time? Um. So this is an interesting question because you're probably you want to you're going to go to compare law firm versus government, and it's actually you, the it it will be counterintuitive the way I answer this question. Um, I had less control of my day uh, when I was in the government um, because I had meetings being scheduled with me, and as long as my calendar was clear, people would put meetings on my calendar. I actually went got to a point where I blocked off an hour in the afternoon on my calendar because there were days where I didn't even have enough time to eat lunch. Mm. So um, that that was challenging. In the private sector, you have lots of demands, but I feel like on my, during the day, I have much more control over my calendar. I can say, actually, I can't do that because I've got to go to my kids' parent-teacher conference. I did that on Monday this, this week. So you're at Sullivan Cromwell, one of the... Uh best and classiest uh, law firms that ever existed. But I I think their policy was we, we make partners internally. And you come from the outside, so are you the new kid on the block over there? I am. I was, um, I, think, I think I was the second lateral partner that they've hired. Um, we've now done two more. Um, it, it's a, I mean, it's a wonderful firm. I, I really, I, I, I don't think I quite realized how lucky I was when, um, Daryl Ebo <laughs> recruited me to, to come to the firm. Um, but I really feel, and I just feel so fortunate to be there. Um, so, but I am, 
the unusual person who hasn't spent the last 20 or 25 years working. So with the, how many in a D.C. office? We're about 50, 55, depending on the time of year. And how many in a New York office? Uh, let's see. Roughly. Around 600. 600 in New York? That's right. I think that's right. Uh-huh. And in terms of your day-to-day work, and uh, how many offices outside of those two? Or is that it? So one of the things I really liked about SNC is, uh, so we have offices in Los Angeles, Palo Alto, Washington, New York, Frankfurt, Paris, Brussels, London. London is our second biggest office. Um, Tokyo, Beijing, Hong Kong, and uh, Sydney and Melbourne, Australia. And how many people are in each of these offices? Varies, but, you know, London is somewhere probably 75 or 80. That's our second biggest office. We're 50. So some of those offices are much smaller than us, but. And in your day-to-day work, uh, is it sharp, should I guess, in the merger area to a large extent, correct? I do a mix of mergers, uh, section two kind of work and and criminal. How, How often are you dealing with people outside the DC office every day. Every day. Yeah. Yeah. I and I I work with people in New York a lot. I work with people in London a lot. I work with people in Brussels and Frankfurt a lot. We have a big M and A practice in London and a big M and A practice in Frankfurt. Um, and then I even work with people in our offices in China and occasionally in um, and and occasionally in Australia. Not 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 as often with folks in Australia. Okay. So this. Um so it sounds like great. It's been a great situation. It's um, it's incredibly interesting work with really smart people who um, the the culture of the firm is designed to create an environment where where people collaborate because our goal is to bring whatever the right resources are to bear on a client's problem. So it is, it's a business, obviously, most law firms are, um, but it's run like a problem-solving organization. So, you know, a client comes in with an issue and everybody kind of says, okay, well, you need to get this person to work with you on this. And then you really work as a collaborative team and and I, I enjoy that a lot. That's a little bit, it's very different from the government, but that sense of collaboration and collegiality and, and is It's very different from the government. It used to be said way back when that uh, taking some from the, who's a long time in the government was somewhat problematical because they're not used to a client. They're used to just thinking what is right then instead of what is just right for the client. Have you had any issues about turning around and thinking from the client's perspective as opposed to the other's perspective? So, um, no. I mean, I've gone in and out several times. Um, I I think that the hard cases where you are in a position where you're arguing with the government over something, those are always matters where both sides have good arguments. And so um, I've never been in a position where I felt like I was um either having to advocate something i didn't believe in or that the government was doing something that i couldn't really understand now 
It's not to say I always agreed with companies when they came in and advocated to the government or the government when I'm advocating in front of them. But I usually can understand at least what's going on. And I think that's very helpful to clients because it is, it's kind of a mysterious process. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, let's take uh, one area, Frand. Do you have anything to do with Frand in your practice? A little bit, I do. That's a mess, isn't it? Um, I think it's... Mess is a, a legal term, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm trying to think whether it's any more messy now than it was before or whether it's gotten better. Um I think it's what it means has, is still not well defined. Um, and I do think that that still creates issues for people. And there's obviously been, you know, a different perspective brought to those issues in the current administration than I had, although there are areas where I agree with, with um, Macon's views on, on this topic. Um, but it's, um, I, I don't know if it's a mess, but I, I do think it's, it suffers from a lack of clarity. I'll take that. I'll take that amendment. Um, uh, antitrust division. Does Macon ever call you up and say, I have an issue, maybe we can discuss this. I'll, I can learn a little bit from what you've done in this or... Or is it everyone just goes and it's a completely new ball game or what? Um, no, there's actually a, a, a fair amount of um, open discussion between current and former, um, you know, depending on what's going on and where you are. Um, you know, it might not be about specific matters, but I talk to Macon pretty frequently. And um, I think we, we share views and have conversations about things that we might disagree on. Well, my view, and, and, and uh, you know, I'm mostly IP now, but I know something a little bit about antitrust is I've been impressed with them so far. Uh, and, uh, and I've been impressed with the ANCO uh, and the PTO. And I, I'm not impressed with the person who appointed them. But I, I think these are two areas that... Mm -hmm. We're actually pretty lucky with what we've gotten. Uh, so I don't know much about the head of the PTO. Macon is uh, an IP lawyer, and he really understands IP and the value of creation. And um, I think that's a positive. I agree with that. So when you were in the antitrust division, at some point you actually worked with the PTO on issues, correct? Correct. And how was that? It was interesting. Um, I mean, I think, um, you know, you started with this kind of battle between IP and antitrust, and, you know, you do get that a bit when you're working with the PTO but on, on these issues. But, um, you know, I thought we actually were able to collaborate with them quite effectively on a number of issues. All right. To what extent the ITC, International Trade Commission, mm -hmm which does things which overlap with antitrust, certainly. Um, and they have these exclusion orders, which are basically injunction against 
I guess, selling in the United States. Uh, is that helpful, that organization? Uh, it could, are they needed? If they're needed, uh, are they doing a good job? So I am a little out of my depth here. Mm -hmm. I will, um, I, my, my sense is that the ITC does serve a valuable purpose for particularly for companies that are um, victims of counterfeiting and um, things like that. And the, the ability for those companies to go to the international um, to the ITC and have that conduct stopped, I think is important. Um, it, I'm not sure how nuanced the analysis is that goes on there, which is, um, I, you know, maybe appropriate for what it does. Um, particularly if you have it running alongside a district court proceeding effectively. So, um, I, th I think it's, I think it serves a valid purpose. I don't, I'm not, I don't practice before it enough to really be able to judge whether they're doing a good job or how they, how they kind of measure up. Okay. Well, now let's talk about the FTC. You're in the antitrust division, uh, Sherman Act, what, 1890, something like that. It's been around. The FTC was created, what, 1905 something, because Congress thought either private parties or the, or the Department of Justice were not doing as much against, quote, monopolies or whatever, uh, and, and created it. And so maybe that was true then or whatever. But today, do we need both agencies? It's a very hot topic. Um, I mean, there are people who say no. Um, I think. I think there is um, value in having uh, two different. Um, what's the right? It's sort of competition, right? And um, the agencies do sort of compete to think about how to um, uh, address particular problems and to use the tools that they have. I mean, the FTC obviously has a consumer protection arm, which does something that's completely uh, different than what DOJ does, and which is a very, very important, um, uh, plays a very, very important role. So, you know, you wouldn't want to get, get, get rid of that for sure. Um, I feel like that the two agencies have, you know, coexisted for so long that the call to get rid of one of them, I mean, I'm not exactly sure what you would, how, what would that would look like without them. And of course, it is impossible to do. Uh, yes, it'll never happen. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, you're head of the uh, antitrust division. Do you ever speak to the chair of the FTC or? Yeah, absolutely, all the time. Yeah. And what would you discuss? I don't mean just, you know, generally. Yeah. What would you discuss? Well, we talked about policy issues that we might care about. Um, you know, we talked about Frand. When I was there, we talked about, um, uh, you know, how the agencies should approach issues that international organizations were or other international enforcers were doing, uh, intergovernmental um, advocacy, 
working with um, the office for the U.S. Trade Rep, for the uh, executive office, the president. You know, there were we. You talk about all kinds of things, and with the goal of um, trying to have a unified voice understanding that each agency kind of has different strengths, I guess. Um, but but my goal was always to make sure that we weren't undermining or undercutting each other, but instead we're working to try to both support each other, but also make sure that um, our approaches were consistent across a, a, a set of norms, I guess. Yeah, I would say it. Well, in terms of uh, issues today, let's say you have IP or antitrust issue, you have many more people who want to get there. I'm just talking about the federal government now, than than used to. I think. Um, uh, and you specifically, we now have a U.S. Trade Representative. How much? Just just take that position. Uh, which is basically dealing with internationally with largely IP issues. Um, to what extent is that they're on their own, or you and the FTC and, and, and PTO sort of discuss things and discuss it with them, or is it basically they're off on their own? Because the president is certainly is not putting much, any president I'm talking about yeah. now much control over it. Yeah. I think it depends on the policy process and how it's run and at what level of um, importance it is. But the I think both the FTC and DOJ have been fantastic advocates for competition within the federal government such that when the competition issues come up, um, they generally have a seat at the table. Um, so if you're in trade negotiations and there's a, a competition section and the chapter of a trade agreement, then, you know, the antitrust agencies would be consulted on that. Um, if, you know, the, a company has gone to the trade rep or to the state department or somewhere else and said, please advocate for me abroad because this competition agency abroad is, we think, doing something terrible to us and it's going to be horrible. The agencies get a seat at that table and get consulted. So um, I think that works fairly well. Mm -hmm. um, and the the number of times where you would have a federal government agency going out in the world, staking out a position on competition law without having consulted the antitrust agencies, um, quite rare, at least in my, when I was in the government. All right. Uh, Supreme Court case, uh, Solicitor General asked, are there any particular cases, current cases or recent cases that you think very important from an antitrust perspective? Or has it sort of been uh, IP and other issues? So, so I mean, you know, Apple versus Pepper is probably the most recent Supreme Court Supreme Court case that's been, you know, kind of a in an area that antitrust. Cares All right, so about. tell that tell us about that. Oh, you're going to tax my memory here. Oh, no, never mind. That's okay then. Um, 
Let's say it is a hardcore antitrust issue, and the court would ask for the opinion of the Solicitor General. The Solicitor General, then you had compete with the FTC and the PTO and you or a bunch, and then all have to convince the Solicitor General that this is the view, or how, how do you work out what the court is going to tell the uh, Supreme Court, what the Solicitor General is going to tell the Supreme Court? So there, there is a consultation process where agencies that might have an interest in a case are, you know, write a memo effectively to the, to the SG to talk about, you know, what its views on the case and where there are conflicts, there are meetings. And then the SG's office decides, A, whether to weigh in. Obviously, if it's if the Supreme Court is asked, they will weigh in. But B, more importantly, they try to formulate um, a position. So they'll they'll judge the merits of the arguments that are being made by all the interested parties and they'll try to develop um, the answer that they think is best. And ultimately the solicitor is the voice of the government with whatever he or she determines to do. Yes. Okay. And typically, at least in the past, the you know filings in you know amicus filings and things like that would have to have been approved by the solicitor general. Okay. Uh, all right. So the future. What today is the most, if there is one, important antitrust either trend or issue or whatever that we can foresee in the future as being the most important? I mean, I, I, you know, antitrust is an incredibly hot topic right now. So there are lots of issues that are floating around that I think um, will, depending on how they're resolved, either in the courts or... All right, or, so it can be more than one. What are they? Um, so... So, you know, there's this running question about whether the consumer welfare standard is the right standard. Um, what standard? Consumer welfare. Yeah. Um, and what's your view on that? So my view is that the consumer welfare standard is a flexible enough stand standard that it can be applied effectively to address um, the kinds of harms that people who think maybe it's not effective. Um, okay, the consumer welfare is another way for the market leave it to the market to some extent right? kind of i mean it's it the the question is what impact does the conduct or the transaction have on consumer welfare so you're looking at the downstream what what experience does a consumer have so there are critiques of that standard that it doesn't capture things that it should capture um in um, so, so um, Scalia, for instance, would have been one of the people who believed in the consumer welfare standard. I think you know most mainstream antitrust lawyers think con the yeah. consumer welfare standard works. Okay. okay. Where where it has been, you know, the the place where people have made good arguments to me for maybe it doesn't capture this kind of a, an effect have been um, in situations where the harm um, runs upstream. And so I'll just give you an example of that. So and employment is a good one. There's lots of in interesting issues right now about antitrust conduct in the area of employees. Um, and, you know, you can see a transaction might 
um, reduce the number of workers at a at the merge firm. Um, that might harm an employment market, but it reduces costs, and those costs, in theory, get passed on to consumers. So the consumer is better off. So the consumer welfare standard is asking the question: Well, how is the consumer better off? It's not asking the question, are employees better off? And so people would say, well, the consumer welfare standard can't capture that harm that's occurring upstream, and maybe it should. And I think the consumer welfare people say, no, it doesn't capture it, and if you want to capture it, government has to do other things to help out that part of the economy or something else. Potentially. I mean, that is certainly something that I've said in the past. I also think you can imagine... Um, to me, the question is, what's causing the harm upstream? Is it a reduction of competition? In which case, it should be an antitrust issue and it should be captured by the consumer welfare standard, or is it something else? Okay. Um, So that's one big one. The digital platforms, what should we do about them, if anything? Are they good? Are they bad? Are they Um, good? Are they bad? (laughs) What about data? You know, how, do, how should the antitrust analysis take data into consideration? I think of it more as a barrier to entry, but is it actually, you know, could you create a competition story around data? So I think there, there are a number of interesting questions percolating And around. any predictions of how this is going to go? Um, I, th- I suspect the consumer welfare standard will survive. Um, I think if the agencies are able to find some interesting cases that um, push the boundaries on some of these other issues um, and they're able to win those. So one of the you know um, uh, big questions people have had about is about predatory conduct and is the, the standard for predation, is it right? It has a, has, has a recoupment prong to it. Um, I tend to think that it's right. I won't go into details because it's not that interesting. Um, but there are people who believe that it makes it too hard to show predatory conduct. And as a as a consequence, you get these very, very efficient firms that are undercutting slightly less efficient firms and putting those firms out of business. Um, so, so the Amazon model would be one of those. Amazon would be one of them. Um, you can imagine others. Um, and so I think if, if, you know, the division or the FTC are able to find a case that could maybe illustrate why that prong of the test actually isn't necessary and when, then that would, that would be, that would be a big, a big change. I don't think it's honestly that likely that's going to happen, but it could. I mean, one of the nice things about antitrust is a lot of the, the laws, you know, in the absence of legislation, which, as you pointed out before, there's not very much of, um, the law is created by the courts and by the cases that are brought. Okay, so if you had to grade current state of antitrust law on a scale of 1 to 10, what grade would you give it? What What am I grading, exactly? Yeah, yeah, I... That's what you have to figure out when you answer this question. <laughs> it's a way of getting your ideas about this. Um, so, um, 
I think that antitrust does the job that most people expect it to do pretty well. Um, I think there is plenty of room for self-reflection on the part of enforcers and um, a need for people to constantly be challenging the paradigm that they that they live with on a daily basis. And, and I think that's, that's hard to do. Um, so I don't know, would I give it a, an eight? I don't know. Something like that. I mean, I think it's, I think it does most of what it's supposed to do. There are probably places where it could do things better. Well, my final question, uh, one to 10, what would you give this podcast? (laughs) I don't know. You have to judge the podcast. I'm, I'm giving it 11. Really? Yes. Wow. Yeah. That's oh, it's fantastic. That's a very high grade. On that note, thanks so much. And uh, this has been fantastic. I'm very happy that we're able to do this. And I I look forward to in the future uh discussing issues with you in various forms and everything else would be great. Excellent. I I always